Uh, please do take a seat. And uh, if you can turn back to page 959, page 959 um, in the Church Bibles. Um, if, you, if you still haven't got a Bible yet and you would like one, please do put up your hand and one will be brought to you. Hopefully everyone um, has got one who would like one. Uh, we're on page 959 and Paul's first letter to um, the Corinthians, uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 to 11 as we continue our series. There aren't any sermon search prizes to give out this week, but please do keep them coming in. Maybe there'll be one over the next week or so. Now we're currently in the, the second half of the letter and we're in the section of this letter where Paul is responding to different issues that the church have raised with him and different questions that they have asked him and they would like answers to. And Paul is in the middle of dealing with, with three issues or three questions that are particularly related to corporate worship. Um, to things that happen when they come together. He's helping them with uh, three things that are having a very divisive and damaging impact on the church as they get together to worship. And as Paul deals with each issue, he keeps bringing them back to the cross-shaped love of Jesus. So, so that's at the heart of every single issue. Uh, that's why they are struggling in these different ways. It's because they've moved away from that love which dies to self and which glorifies Jesus and which puts others first. And so it's a great question to ask ourselves, how much do the, does the cross-shaped love of Jesus leave its imprint on our thoughts and our words and our actions? That is what is at the heart of all these things that they are struggling with. And so he's spoken about head coverings in the first half of chapter 11. He's uh, spoken about the Lord's Supper in the second half of chapter 11. And now he's about to teach uh, about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, he's already referred back in chapter 1 in the introduction uh, to how the church is not lacking in any of the gifts of the Spirit. And, and given now that he will spend three whole chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, chapters 12 through to 14, it shows their need for Paul to give teaching on it. Now sadly... Uh, people's attitude towards and people's use of and people's um, understanding of the gifts of the Spirit um, has been the reason behind uh, much of the fractures and the splits and division within the church. Uh, that was very much the case in Corinth. Um, uh, the, some of their attitude towards the gifts of the Spirit was causing divisions within the church, and it's a cause of division in the church worldwide today. Uh, and this is doubly sad because, because the very reason why the Holy Spirit gives the gifts is for them to be used for the good and for the building up and for the health and the unity and the strengthening of the church. And so I don't know how you are approaching these next three chapters. I don't know kind of what you're looking forward to as we think about them. But, but my prayer is, is that as we look at these chapters together, that, that, our, that our biggest and our primary and our most immediate questions will not be things like what exactly are the different gifts of the Spirit, uh, nor whether some of them have ceased or not, 
although inevitably we will think about questions like that in the relevant passages, but, but rather in the context of spiritual gifts, my prayer is, is that our biggest and our most immediate questions will be ones like how can we love each other and do good to each other and strengthen each other and build each other up in a unified way. That is the purpose uh, behind what Paul says in these next three chapters. In the context of spiritual gifts, how can we show the cross-shaped love of Jesus, that sacrificial love of chapter 13, to each other? Now this morning I want to ask and hopefully answer five questions. Firstly, who has the Spirit? Secondly, what is a gift of the Spirit? Thirdly, who has a gift of the Spirit? Four, why are there a variety of gifts? And then five, what are the gifts for? So that's kind of hopefully where we're going this morning. So firstly, who has the Spirit? Who has the Holy Spirit? Now clearly the Corinthians, they've asked Paul a question about the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't have their side of the communication. Uh, we only have Paul's response, these three chapters. So we don't exactly know what the question is that they've asked him. And from what Paul has said and says in these three chapters as a whole, it's, it's possible that the question went something like this. Do spiritual gifts show people's spirituality? I think that's probably the kind of question that they were asking. Do spiritual gifts show people people's spirituality? And with the way in which Paul addresses the gift of tongues in these chapters, it would seem that some people are putting a particular emphasis on that gift. And they were saying that the gift of tongues is the gift to have. If you have the gift of tongues, that means that you are a really, really, really spiritual person. Now, right from the very outset in verses 1 to 3, verses which are exceptionally difficult to understand, I think Paul looks to lay down a foundational principle. And he does this by answering a very basic question. And the basic question is this. How do you know whether someone even has the Spirit? How do you know whether someone even has the Spirit? How do you know whether someone is even a Christian? Now in verses 2 and 3, Paul is getting them to think back to before they were Christians. Go back into your memories to when you were pagans, he tells them. Think back to what it was like when you used to go to the temples and worship unspeaking idols. Now, why does Paul want them to do that? And I think it's because he wants them to remember what they did in their worship. And I think it's because he wants them to remember the kinds of things that happened in their worship of these uncommunicating idols. Uh, what was it that did happen in Corinth? Well, in, in a state of supposed religious spirituality, uh, pagan worshippers, they would often get caught up in a kind of mystical, ecstatic, um, spiritual experience, often using unknown and unintelligible words in their praise of these idols. 
Now, no one knows for sure exactly what the scenario Paul is describing is in the first part of verse 3. Uh, but, but to me, the most plausible suggestion is, is that during uh, the pagan worship of these idols in Corinth, amidst all of the frenzied and religious spiritual speech, sometimes people would curse Jesus. And for someone to curse Jesus, clearly they were not speaking in the spirit of God, verse three. No one speaking in the spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. You remember back in chapter 10, Paul had taught them that actually behind the idol worship is the influence of demons. He talks about here about being led astray here. So, so, so what point is Paul trying to make? Well, well, I think that he's telling them this. I think that he's saying that, that you know from your pagan past uh, that just because someone seems to make all kinds of religious and spiritual speech and utterances, uh, just because they seem to be able to do something spiritual, that in and of itself doesn't mean that they're speaking in the spirit. Uh, that doesn't mean that they have the spirit. Indeed, it could be that some of the Corinthians were, were trying to discern whether or not someone was a Christian by what spiritual gift they might or they might not have. No, no true spirituality, a real Christian, is seen primarily, end of verse 3, not in their gifts, but in whether or not they confess Jesus as Lord. Does someone confess Jesus as Lord? That's the test. That's the foundational truth. That's how you know whether or not someone has the Holy Spirit or not. The Holy Spirit loves to make much of Jesus. He loves to honor Jesus and shine his light on Jesus. He loves to glorify Jesus. He loves it when people praise Jesus and worship Jesus and speak well of Jesus. And this confession of Jesus as Lord is not just in word only, there is to be substance to it. Uh, the person who verbally confesses Jesus as Lord also is to be endeavoring to live a life of obedience to Jesus, coming under his lordship. That's where the evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is truly seen. If, if you are a Christian here this morning, the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who dwells in you, will be making you want to honor Jesus and obey him. That's what he does. And if someone says they've become a Christian, how do you know whether they have or not? What do you look for? Do you look for some kind of experience in their lives? A clear evidence that someone has become a Christian is that in their words and in their actions, they are beginning to come under the lordship of Jesus. That is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in someone's life. And so having laid that foundational truth, Paul now comes on to the gifts of the Spirit. And in our second question, we ask, what is a gift of the Spirit? What is a gift of the Holy Spirit? Now, the first thing to say is that a gift of the Holy Spirit is just that. 
It is a gift. It is a gift. It is a generous gift from the Holy Spirit. It is a grace gift or ability or role with gifts to equip um, given by the Holy Spirit to a believer. So the believer has done nothing to earn the gift. Um, He hasn't worked for the gift. Uh, They haven't done anything special to get the gift. It's, It's a gift that is given to them by God. And that is emphasized all through this passage. And so if you are ever tempted to feel proud because of your gift, um, if you're ever tempted to feel that you're something quite special because of the gift that you have, that means that you have completely missed the point. It's, it's a gift. Um, you, you did nothing to obtain it. It's a grace gift given by God. And you notice in the passage that it's God who gives the power to the gift. So that's emphasized twice. You see that there in verse six and verse 11, the gifts are empowered by the spirit. So a spiritual gift is a grace gift or ability or role with gifts to equip given and empowered by the spirit. Now there are four main lists of gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, as well as uh, a very short general one in 1 Peter 4. Um, So you have a list here in verses 8 to 10. Uh, You have a second list later on in the chapter in verse 28. Uh, You have a third list in Romans 12, and then you have a fourth list in Ephesians 4. And these lists include apostles, prophets, evangelists, Pastors, teachers, uh, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, a distinguishing between spirits, a speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, healing, uh, sorry, helping, leading, serving, encouraging, giving, and acts of mercy. Now, if you look in verses 8 to 10, Paul lists out nine gifts of the Spirit. And I think uh, the reason why he's chosen these, uh, part of the reason is to show the, some of the, the diversity um, of the gifts of the Spirit, as well as some of the, um, some of the supernatural um, gifts of the Spirit. Now, now, one of the difficulties is, is, that, is that there isn't universal agreement on what exactly each gift is. And so I, we, need to approach them with humility. Um, The first two, verse 8, are grouped together as speaking gifts. Uh, The gift of wisdom is probably linked to the wisdom of chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's probably the preaching of the gospel and the cross. Uh, The gift of knowledge could be insight into the scriptures and the ability to be able to communicate that and share that with people. Um, Others suggest it might be being able to speak knowledgeably into a situation. Then you have the gift of faith. Now, Now this is not the gift of saving faith which all believers have, but it seems to be the faith that God gives 
you to believe that he's going to do a specific work even though there's no explicit Bible promise that he will. And, and some link this gift of faith to the, to the next two gifts of healing and miracles. So, so God does heal wonderfully and we, we see examples um, in the New Testament, in, in the church, of God doing that through different people. And by the time that you get to the letter of James, it seems that the elders are particularly responsible for praying for healing. Uh, the next gift is miracles. Uh, this would include healings, but would include more than that. And, and then you have four gifts, uh, each of which possibly come up in chapter 14. Uh, you have the gift of prophecy. Uh, this could include teaching. Uh, but it seems to be some form of God-prompted, God-inspired speech. And then the ability to distinguish between spirits. Uh, and this is probably the ability to discern whether something is of God or not. And, and, and perhaps is linked to the previous gift of prophecy. Uh, and then, of course, you have speaking in uh, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Um, which we will come to in more detail in chapter 14, each of those four seem, they seem to be linked to inspired speech or utterances. So, so a spiritual gift is a grace gift or ability or role with gifts uh, to equip uh, the person and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we come to our third question, which is who has a gift of the Spirit? Who has a gift of the Spirit? And the answer is everyone who has the Spirit. Everyone who has the Spirit. So everyone who is a believer, everyone who is a Christian, has been given at least one gift of the Spirit. No one has all the gifts. Everyone has at least one gift. That's emphasized all through this passage. So, 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 so to one is given that gift. And to another is given this gift. And to another is given that gift. That's what you get all through the passage. Uh, the point being that, that no one ends up with all the gifts, but every believer has at least, least one gift. Uh, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation or a gift of the Spirit. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he decides. So, so each believer is given a gift by the Spirit, and it's God who chooses what gift to give. So if you have ever been envious of someone else's gift, remember who it is who's decided what gift to give. And remember that the gift in and of itself is not a measure of how spiritual or special that person is. It's a grace gift. Now, the fact that all believers have a gift, it means that every single believer has a part to play in the life of the church. And our part is not limited to just that gift, but every believer has a part to play in the life of the church. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have a part to play in the life of the church. And so one question that it's important to ask yourself is, do you know what your gift is? Do you know what your gift is? 
Have you thought about how you can use your gift for God's honor? You say, well, how do you find out what your gift or your gifts are? Well, often the only way in which you find out is by trying. Uh, By trying an avenue of service. Often you don't find out whether you have a gift in that area until you try serving in that way. And this is coupled with listening to other believers and leaders. Uh, We all have a role in recognizing the gifts in others. So, So who has a spiritual gift? Everyone who is a believer. Everyone who has the spirit. A fourth question, why is there a variety of gifts? Why is there a variety of gifts? Why is there such diversity? Well, well, partly it's to reflect God himself. Uh, In verses four to six, Paul says that there are a variety of gifts. uh, And the selection that he gives in verses eight to ten show us something of that variety. Uh, You notice in verse 5 that he also says that there is a variety of service. So that's referring to the fact that there are different ways in which you can use gifts. And he also says in verse 6 that there are a variety of activities or workings. So, So this is referring to the different outcomes that result in using the gifts. And you notice in verses four to six, as Paul talks about a variety of gifts and service and activities, Paul deliberately refers to the the three different persons, members of the Trinity. You have the Spirit, you have Jesus the Lord, and you have God the Father. Now the fact that there is a variety of gifts and that we each have different gifts and, and, and we don't have the same gifts is deliberate. God has deliberately designed it like this to reflect him. It's, it's to reflect the fact that there is more than one person in the Godhead. So as there is more than one person within the Godhead, as there is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, uh, The variety of gifts points to, if I can say it like this, the variety in the Godhead. So so as you see that someone else has been given a a gift that is different to you, and maybe you're you're tempted to feel envious of that gift, and you're tempted to think, well, they've been given a better gift. Or or maybe as you think about your own gift and and you're tempted to feel puffed up with pride and you you look down on someone else um, because they haven't been given that gift. You you need to remember why it is that God has given a variety of gifts. He hasn't given you your gift because you are more special than others. Nor has he given you your gift because he doesn't love you as much as others. The diversity of gifts is to glorify him. It's, It's to magnify him. And we should celebrate and praise God for the whole variety of gifts that he gives to the church because it all points to him, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And yet as we think about the variety of gifts, we need to remember the unity we have in God. So the church in Corinth, they were very divided 
over this area of gifts. And they seem to have been saying that, that you were more spiritual if you had this gift and you were less spiritual if you had that gift. And, and, and groups were kind of being created around the different gifts and there were fractures and there were splits and there was disunity. And yet you notice the length that Paul goes to to show the unity that there is in God. We've already seen that in verses four to six. Father, Son, and Spirit. And you notice also the lengths that Paul goes to in this passage to show us the unity that we have in the unified God. So verse five, we all have the same Savior, Jesus. We all have the same Lord Jesus. Verse six, we all have the same Father. And then notice Paul's big emphasis on us all having the same spirit or the one spirit. So verse four, we all have the same spirit. Verse eight, we all have the same spirit. Verse nine, we all have the same spirit. Verse nine again, uh, we all have the the one spirit. Uh, Verse 11, again, we all have the same spirit. So, So the Holy Spirit who has given you a gift It's the same Holy Spirit who has given me a gift. That's where our unity is found. It's not found in the gifts. It's not found in the gifts at all. It's found in him. As as Father, Son, and Spirit are one. So we are to be one in them. And so if you are tempted, like the Corinthians, to find your unity in your gift and you kind of more align yourself with other people who share the same gift, then you need to realize that your unity comes in God, not the gift. And so finally we ask the question, what are the gifts for? What are the gifts for? We've already seen that um, their variety is to reflect something of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in verse seven, Paul tells the Corinthians that they've been given by the Spirit for the common good. They've been given by the Holy Spirit for the common good. Now, when we get to chapter 14 and verse 26, we find that he will tell the Corinthians that they have been given for the building up and the strengthening and the growing of the church. We, we need a diversity of gifts for the health of the church um, so that the church can be built up and strengthened and grow. So spiritual gifts are not given to be a platform for self-promotion. Nor are they given to parade spirituality. Nor are they given for self-fulfillment or self-satisfaction. They are given for the benefit and for the good of the church as a whole. And so that means that chapter 13 is essential. And that means that the cross-shaped love and sacrificial love of Jesus is needed to use them. And they are given to strengthen, not weaken. And they are given to unite, not divide. And they are given to build up, not destroy. 
And they are given to bless, not damage. And they are given to point to God, not ourselves. And they are given for the good of others. And you just think, how, how generous and, and how kind God is to, to give each one of us a gift that we might use it to do good to his people. What a part you have to play in the life of the church. None of us, none of us should be just consumers in church life. Uh, None of us should be those who just come and receive and receive and receive and receive. And that's all we do. God has given every single believer a gift so that we have something to give. So that we have a part to play in the life of the church. It it doesn't mean that uh, the only way of giving or serving or using your gift is by being on a rotor. But we all have a part to play. God has given us all a gift so that we have something to give. And so, for example, you think about all the people in your own life who have or who do use their gift or their gifts for you. In a sacrificial way, they use it for your blessing and for your benefit and for your good. Maybe they've served you or shown great kindness to you, or encouraged you, or they've given generously to you, or they've helped you, or they've taught you, or they've led you, they've built you up, they've strengthened you, they've, they've laid down themselves in some way on your behalf, for your benefit, and for your good. Uh, you, you think about all the people who, who do or who could benefit from you and from the gift that God has given to you to to use for their good. Um, In in the news the other day, I I read this, I I didn't hear it, but it was in the news, it was reported that a a Richard Plaud, I think that's that's a guess at how you say his name, a Richard Plaud, he'd spent eight years building a model of the Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. Uh, I don't know whether anyone saw this story. You see, I keep up to date with the big news that's going on in the world. But, but eight years, eight years building um, a, a matchstick model of the Eiffel Towers. And by the time he finished it, it was 23 feet tall. He'd used over 700,000 matches and 23 kilograms of glue. And he invited the Guinness Book of Records officials to come along and verify it as the tallest matchstick building in the world. Uh, Unfortunately, when they came and they saw it, they said that he couldn't have the world record because he had used the wrong type of matchstick. I mean, you imagine how gutted he must have been. Imagine spending eight years of your life patiently building an Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks, carefully gluing hundreds of thousands of tiny sticks together, only to be told that you had wasted your time. Thankfully, they had mercy and they changed their minds the next day. But you are involved in building. You are involved in building, building up the people of God, building them up, doing good to them. And when you use your gifts for the benefit of others, it is never a waste of time. It is never a waste of time. It blesses the individual. 
It, it strengthens the church as a whole. And it glorifies the God who gave you the gifts that you might use them for his people. And may God help us to think about how we might serve him and his people with the gifts that he's given to us.